Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, and this is a comics podcast. And this is the comics podcast for people who care about the people who make comics. Today, I just learned a number of extremely talented people were laid off in a merger between comics publishers. I hope the rest of the community will keep their work in mind, supporting them financially uh, by buying their comics and connecting them with other opportunities in the industry so we can keep reading comics from these diverse and talented people in the future. And joining me today is a really amazing new talent in the indie comics world who I'm excited to have come on the show. Uh, ben Kahn is a comic book writer based in New York. Their latest series, Griffin, Galaxy's Most Wanted, is their third collaboration with artist Bruno Hidalgo after Shaman and Heavenly Blues. Griffin is a genderqueer, anti-fascist space opera published by SBI Press exclusively on Comixology. And Heavenly Blues sees a ragtag group of deceased thieves condemned to hell pull, team up to pull the ultimate heist on heaven. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Glad, uh, good to be here. Yeah. I think, like, did we meet at Forbidden Planet at, at the comic book shop? I think we, it was one of those things where through New York, we met, you know, the New York comic scene met at a few different places, like a Mysterious Time Machine at a party here <laughs> and there, so... One a convention, so one of those multiple meetings lead up to an introduction. Excellent, excellent. And I'd actually heard about your work. Um, I just separately from having met you, uh, one of a friend friend of the show, uh, Peter Hagnes, was telling me about. Uh, I don't remember what it brought up, but he he'd mentioned to me that he really liked Heavenly Blues, and then I was like, oh, I just like met Ben, so I should probably check that out then. <laughs> and, That's um, awesome. Yeah, ah. yeah. And uh, he was right. It's really freaking awesome. I, oh I'm really enjoying your comics. Oh, thank you so much. I'm still very much at the phase of, oh, my God, people are reading a thing I wrote. Mm -hmm. I kind of hope that never stops being awesome. I mean, yeah, it is. It is awesome. It is yeah. awesome. I, wait, so how long have you been? How long have you been writing comics? So... I started way back when just doing a very silly kind of four-panel video game-based little sprite comic when I was 15, and I did that through all of high school and a good chunk of college, and then as I kind of discovered more, you know, Marvel, DC, Image, Vertigo, um, just this whole new world opened up a whole new world of possibilities and stories, and, you know... A lot more you can do than with four panels and some video game graphics you got off the internet. Uh, so I kind of, me and Bruno first started work on our first book in 2012, which uh, came out in 2015, which was Shaman, which was published by Locust Moon Press after a successful Kickstarter. And then, uh, you know, then after that, we just kind of, we've never stopped working together since. So really... Me and Bruno have been kind of in some fashion working together since really kind of 2013, 20, late 2012, 2013. Yeah. So how how did you guys meet? So we were originally connected through the publisher Locust Moon Press. Uh, the book was edited by Chris Stevens and Andrew Carl. And just based off uh, some of the artists they worked with, they had worked with in the past, especially... Uh, their Once Upon a Time Machine uh, anthology through Dark Horse. Mm -hmm. They'd had, uh, we kind of had a bit of a certain amount of artists we were looking at, uh, potentially for the book, and right away Bruno just really just stood out for this 
really unique sense, like style and way of just drawing people and bringing mm-hmm. such personality to the page. So mm-hmm. that so he was kind of uh, the person we reached out to, and uh, you know, and it clearly it's uh, been a fruitful collaboration. Totally. I, I know a lot of folks who are new to writing comics just don't really know where to begin when it comes to finding art partners, you know. Um, there's so that's, few people who can really yeah. do the art sometimes. That's definitely and, where I was at, and I was lucky to have people to kind of show me the way and really and help me put that first creative team together. It's interesting. I, looking at their art, I, um, it, I, I thought immediately of Jamie uh, Hewlett's drawings, Um and then also somewhat later when I was reading uh, when I was reading Heavenly Blues, which I, I read Griffin before I read Heavenly Blues, uh, you guys had these these really cool little devils carrying one of the the characters down to hell, and I was like, and then that's a little bit of Mike Mignola, so that's that's a cool combination. Bruno has, I think, just some of the coolest influences. I think you can see such stylish personality driven styles within his own art. And I think especially with just kind of this muted, kind of, like just his sense of fashion and style, bring his own sense of it. And mm-hmm. I love, I always love artists where you can tell who drew it with almost every panel. Yes. And I love, I feel like Bruno is always putting his own touches, his own personalities into the world constantly. And as a writer, that's just so much fun to see what he'll create and what he'll make of like what I've written. So how did you develop the idea for Griffin, the latest series? So Griffin came partially out of kind of sensing that there's been a bit, like there'd really been a bit of a revival in that kind of traveling spaceship like genre, you know, like Doctor Who had obviously made a successful mm-hmm. comeback and then, you know, started to be new Star Trek, the Orville, Legends of Tomorrow, even like, and I think it was like a black, the Black Mirror episode, USS Callister, that it just had critical mass where it just made me go, you know, I want to make a spaceship adventure <laughs> series. And, um, but Star Trek, uh, you know, Star Trek came from a place of hope and optimism in humanity's best qualities. And, uh, you know, circa 2017, that kind of hope and faith in humanity's goodness not kind of in short supply these days. So uh, I kind of wanted to take that Star Trek setup of showing the future, showing humanity's potential, good or bad, um, and really with the emphasis on science and what science means, uh, but really apply it to a character in a world that really was kind of grappling with these issues and just utter like existential loss of faith in humanity Um, it's you know i think like you're you know just from the very first panels of the issue you have the protagonist just really giving a blistering critique of the military industrial complex that is applicable today as well as in this distant future story uh, but also with a great sense of humor you know like you're doing both of those things at the same time I mean, uh, thank you. I mean, it's, I'm not, to me, I'm not generally good at writing super serious all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, and maybe this is just me going back from my webcomic days where the goal was, all right, you got four panels, make them laugh every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, and 
in a way, I think, actually, in a way, Griffin is, like, the character of Lila Griffin does kind of harken back to some of my webcomic days, which, for the record, was, eh, please don't go looking for it. Uh, oh, duly noted. It, it was, uh, you know, I started when I was 15, raised on South Park and Chappelle show. It was not a great time, uh, but the characters were kind of more psychotic, but very driven, very loud, very brash, very also, but very, but had a lot of forward momentum, didn't need a story to affect them. They were, they could be like, these characters could almost be a wrecking ball into other people's stories. So um, kind of, you know, back then it was all just in pure teenage, edgy, not nihilism humor, but take, but, you know, still taking some of those characters, right? Like, types about putting it more in a real world context or with hopefully a little more to say and putting a little more substance behind the brashness to create really just trying to create a protagonist that can kind of be my mouthpiece for all these various different issues but someone who can just propel the story forward in hopefully a wild entertaining way so like so lila is a is a uses they them pronouns and does is it do they identify as genderqueer or non-binary specifically or like what what uh so it's uh they identify as non-binary um Mm -hmm. in chapter four which uh should be coming out in which will be coming out in late june uh is where they specifically state that that um their pronouns as they them um in the in the first few issues um which they do get misgendered a lot in the series, which is a big part of it because it's, um, to me, as, as I found, is part of the non-binary non-binary experience because there really is no default they them look, um, but it also becomes a way of showing uh, the characters' familiarity with them, uh, their increasing loyalty to them, and as characters get to know them better, uh, the shift in pronouns becomes a bit of a way of showing of having a bit of showing the characters growth in relationships as they come to more of an understanding of this wild chaotic mystery that's kind of blown into the universe and i think that i think that i I got that even from just the part that we had like i i think there was something really pointed from lila's ex who i won't give away who that is for those who are reading, just picking up the comic now, but like Lila's ex misgenders them in a way that felt really like, ah, well, that's definitely part of the reason why you are an ex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it seemed rather really character driven and connected to their history together. Yeah, and that was absolutely intentional, just showing yeah. that, you know, this is a fascist nightmare empire. They're generally not too great on the queer rights. Um, <laughs> But also just kind of showing that, you know, in this world, every, unfortunately, and this is just true for, I think, in the, in all, like, our world right now, uh, just existing as who you are is can be an act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that the, the series did a really great job with um, introducing that, that, that aspect of the character. Um, Thank you. I, so I, yeah. yeah, I hope. You know, I know it's not. No, there hasn't been a ton of non-binary representation, so I'm. No. I, I hope I'm putting out something 
good into the world in that regard. Yeah, and it's ridiculous how little science fiction, you know, includes it. Like, obviously, there have always been non-binary people forever and in very organized structures, even in different cultures and societies over time. But certainly now they're in, you know, in this particular part of postmodernity in which we live today, there's like even more people who are identifying as non-binary using those particular terms. Um, and so, and we know like looking at the demographical information we have of younger people that, you know, that's just going to be increasing in time as people feel more comfortable claiming those identities and expressing themselves. And so the idea that there is so much science fiction being made now that doesn't include that is really stupid. And I agree. And it was important to me that Griffin being non-binary isn't in itself science fiction, that this isn't the result of generalist robots or generalist Mm. aliens or magic or cloning. This is a regular flesh and blood human being who identifies as non-binary. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, totally. I, um... Not to sidetrack yeah. too much, but I well, like one of the characters that I'm doing at my current RPG game is non-binary, and I like had to sort of make people not assume that that was because they were an elf or are an elf, whatever they're fictional. So were or are, it's all relative, but like was not te- particularly tied to their species or their status as being a super scientist. It's like no, that's not neither here nor there. Ex- yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, yeah. So yeah. Awesome. Um, you want me to get back to the opening yes, monologue? Yes, so the opening. So the opening monologue, super bombastic. I really enjoyed it. I wasn't sure if, like, did you put into the script and one of these motherfuckers looks like Trump? Or was that Bruno just being like, you know what, one of these motherfuckers should look like Trump? That's Bruno saying that one of That's these motherfuckers amazing. should look like Trump. Uh, Donald Trump is also uh, chilling, at, is also in hell in one scene, in one issue of Heavenly Blues as well. Yes, I noticed that. When when was Heavenly Blues published at first? Uh, Heavenly Blues was published by Scout Comics from 2017 to 2018. Oh, okay. So it was, at, it, it was during the time of his prominence as it Yeah. Were. Whatever the word is I would want to use for just the opposite of pro- whatever. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to a game of Guess Our Politics. <laughs> But um, I uh, but yeah, so th- that that totally cracked me up. But um, but yeah, I think like when you're dealing with a science fiction story and people don't really know what are the laws of the universe, um, I I like that you're doing this in a really character-driven way that I felt like a lot of the questions about the world that you might have like you're, they're just not stumbling blocks. Like you can just kind of just go and dive right into it. Uh, thank you. I mean, it's, you know, it's when you don't have like kind of a fantasy novel to really spread it out. I think it becomes important to really dive in on your POV character and really figure out what's important to them, what elements of the world are important and relevant to them and figure out what you really need to tell or to make the world real, at least as the characters are going to be seeing it and really dial in and make sure you're focusing on the stuff that really needs to be there, but also trying to, you know, pack in as many fun extra details as you can to try to, even if it's just a one-line thing here that get, hopefully gets people thinking and imagining what it could be beyond what's actually there in the story. So, yeah, what were those elements for this story to you? So I think we needed to see, um, you know, I think, especially in the first issue, um, 
as much as like right away I would have liked to have arguably directly shown uh, what the reach the effect of the reach rule would be uh, I couldn't figure out a way to do that without making it to you know opening scroll narrator bad people doing bad things uh, so instead I'm more trusted that if I re- you know what the book's called Griffin you open on Griffin if I trust the audience will be on their side and carry it then maybe like they, then their word is enough that what the, how they describe the reach the sovereign reach the reader will will internalize that mm-hmm. and you know the book is called Griffin it'll to me that lives or dies on their character so to let them be the introduction of the world let their visceral reaction to the reach be the first thing the audience like the audience sees mm. I thought was an important thing to focus on and then as you get to chapter three where we get you know mo- more of a proper introduction which um which, which will be coming out on june 5th where we get mm. more of a proper introduction to our main villain admiral rosalind hunter uh where we actually get to directly see the effects um what it's like to be directly under reach occupation and rule but now instead of but by doing it in issue two instead of random alien species xyz it we can now directly see that it's the species of telica who is the resistance member that we've now spent an entire issue following and going on this adventure Mm-hmm. with Griffin, so it's not just a random alien world, it's now a world of a character we care about. Mm-hmm. So just trying to just trying to not branch out for any for like all the tangents, but just try to make sure that as the universe gets bigger, it's through the character's eyes that it's getting bigger. Oh, that totally makes sense. And it also connects to the stakes of why that character cares so much about what happens in that particular world too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, and you you, know, you also designed them as being. Um, I'm sorry. What's the character's name with the letter T? Uh, Telika. Telika. So she she she's described as being an elf. Uh, so to me that was more kind of um, you know, I definitely kind of had in mind a bit of uh, yeah, space elves. Everyone likes space elves. Uh, but uh, you know, kind of uh, your old classic Vulcan ears. So to me, it would just be more, it would just kind of, you know, in our, because humans are just fucking terrible and we're awful, uh, elf would just become a slur that I feel like would become used very easily for Telika's people. So more just me techno-babbling a racial slur, which is terrible to say out loud. But I think that's a smart way to do it because you did it without developing, without using language that's actually offensive in real life um, while making it clear that, like, that's what's going on, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, especially with this where it's occupation, where it's like, you know, you're dealing with so much colonialism, military industrial complex, uh, prison system, um, it's there's obviously stand-ins, but you have to consider what the limits and pitfalls of a stand-in are. So you always so you want to try to get the general message across, but you never want it to be so specific that you're appropriating someone else's uh, pain and struggle. Um, 
especially if you're not part of it and you don't know how to properly represent that without uh, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Very well said, and definitely something people are talking a lot about right now. Um, so uh, you are you know, making science fiction in which you have the ability to have other kinds of alien races and planets look like anything you want. I mean, what kind of what kind of thought process do you have when you're designing, like, I mean, obviously you're doing this in conjunction with the artist, but when you're designing conceptually, like what different kinds of space civilizations and alternate worlds that you, that you're going to be spending time in. So we get to spend, so some of it's just, what do I think would be fun? Uh, you know, in chapter four, we get introduced to a new crew member who's just kind of, um, again, new kind of alien, me kind of thinking bird, mammal, amphibian fish just trying to think of Mm -hmm. you know what are the various kinds of basic life we already have to think about and okay let's use that as a little bit of inspiration like how if you know you roll the die a little different and it's the goat people who ended up with the Mm -hmm. opposable thumbs and walking on two legs who figured it out (laughs) um so kind of trying to just so part of it's just trying to imagine okay what if what if the cards got dealt just a little what if the cards got dealt a little differently and some species ended up with different traits that they ended up with and you just ended up with different kinds of people so you have get some aquatic people uh you get a planet full of bird people that we get to visit in issue four which um or chapters um i suppose that would be chapters eight and nine or mm-hmm. no i'm sorry uh nine and ten and that would and after a lot of especially devastation that we see in um what kind of makes up issues two and three uh on uh Telica's home planet where we get to where we see uh the effects of you know years or decades of reach rule uh we get to contrast that with a more thriving planet um with a more vibrant culture to mm. kind of contrast a world that's already lost everything with a world that has everything still to lose. See, that's really fabulous because like, I don't know if you're watching the new Star Trek. Yes. Um, I'm okay. I'm super behind. So this is basically just a reflection on season one, even though I've watched, Mm -hmm. I don't know, seven episodes of season two, but my complaint with Star Trek, you know, was that it was, you know, we looked to Star Trek to see a vision of a positive future. And Yet in this time of great need, the new Star Trek was like about war and a world where things, I mean, I don't know, nobody in that Star Trek world was dying because they couldn't get health insurance, but it certainly is not like future space utopia Yeah, that, you know, and so I was disappointed that it didn't really feel like it was venturing into ideas about like things that would make the world better. Uh, and I think a lot of science fiction is dystopian because we sort of live in a dystopia and it's easier to draw upon like what the next step down the ladder would be. But people have a much harder time thinking about alternate m- modes of the future. And that's really a shortcoming. I mean, we have a saying, uh, uh, r- writer and theorist, uh, Adrian Marie Brown, who uh, was the creator of the, the book Octavius Brood, um, said that uh, organizing is is uh, science fiction speculative fiction um you know when we say that like we're going to come together and we're going to develop a you know we're going to fight for a green new deal and have that green new deal become a reality 
that speculative fiction. We're envisioning a future that's different than the world we have right now, and then we're taking action to bring us there. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, Adrian's freaking amazing. Um, So I think that that's one of the reasons why there's such a deficit in that, and I'm really excited to to hear that your comic is going to include a a glimpse at a world that is a good place to be. Yeah, and kind of... um... And that'll be one that hopefully kind of touches on, you know, just trying to keep, to me, the sovereign reaches, all the terrible atrocities that mankind has built our civilizations on. So it's not, you know, it's not a direct one-to-one for just what's going on. There's obviously, and, you know, you got your good old-fashioned, uh, not, you got your good old-fashioned Nazi party, but hopefully, you know, still, uh, you know, even, uh, the Spanish conquistadors like mm-hmm. get thrown under the bus. So <laughs> to me just um, calling out the sins that we've built. So hopefully as we see how the reach builds their empire, it maybe makes us reflect on may on some of the, uh, you know, the terrible, awful things we've done to build our own civilization. Totally. No, that's really important as well. What are I was, uh, you were saying about dystopia and utopia. I, I feel like Griffin's setting is maybe more dystopia, but I wouldn't call it dystopia. I'd almost call it more yeah. cathartic, where it's just taking all the terrible stuff we have to deal with and just creating a super, super angry, good with a sword avatar to just actually do something about it all. Mm. And just kind of be the be a bit of an agent of our frustrations, almost like how the Hulk can be sometimes. I love it. And and also, you know, from the beginning of the story, they're primarily talking about, like, what they need to do for themselves, for their own freedom. And, you know, I... I and the other character to... to Telika. Telika um, is the character who's sort of pushing them to be more uh, concerned about the implications beyond just them individually. To me... And, I, and you get more into the series goes on is that Griffin does think about the implications for everything constantly, and they're at, and they're at a point where that that's broken them. That is completely bro- trying to figure out what could possibly be considered a good thing, an unambiguous right thing that makes the universe better. And when you think about it in the at the scale of changing not just planets but entire solar systems and galaxies morale like more the morality just fails it just breaks down like you can't just be unambiguously good at that stage and i think i think almost only telica their world is their view is completely macro and to a point it's almost morality is almost a cthulhu monster that griffin has stared into and come back from slightly broken hmm. oh that's really interesting um, so, uh, what are, I mean, what are some of your influences when working on this piece? So I think there's definitely a bit of, um, you know, some of them like Errol Flynn kind of swashbuckling, so like lightsaber sword going. I mean, to me, one mm-hmm. thing that was important was for as much as if Griffin is going to be a character that we kind of champion, that kind of champions violence and pursues violent solutions and I, is someone I still want the audience to feel good about and kind of root for <laughs> and feel about it. Um, to me, it's important that the violence then 
kind of not be so real, not, not be that realistic. Mm. Um, so it's not reflecting it. So it's important to me that for all of this crazy violence, uh, Griffin's using a sword and they're storming starships with no magic powers and just a, a glowing pink sword, but just a sword. And it works, and and it, they pull it off because they're just that good, and they're in this, and it's a story. But uh, to me, it gives the violence a sense of unreality that I think would be is important. And I guess I think with some of the messages that, or with some of with the way the character is, I think if they were say, you know, like the Punisher with a bunch of guns going around shooting people, I wouldn't be comfortable with a lot of what's in the book. So it was important to me to kind of avoid a lot of the real-world violence that some that is such a big issue these days. Got it. Yeah, and I understand that choice. I really do. Um, I, I think that it's part of the humor of the book, and, and definitely sort of... I like the Errol Flynn connection that you brought up there. I definitely see it in the character. Yeah. And then... Um, and yeah, I think just... You know, uh, music is always a big influence influence for me when I'm writing. And what's so funny is that to me is that my taste can completely change depending on what I'm writing. Mm. So when I was writing Heavenly Blues, I was listening to a lot of electro swing music and old jazz. And now um, Griffin has been a lot of uh, 2000s LA uh, girl punk bands has mm. been the music of choice. So of a uh, you know, Go Betty Go, The Donnas, uh, Dolly Rots, Betty Blowtorch. Uh, so that's been fun, just always discovering a new genre of music. Like I said, a lot of your kind of your sci-fi shows, uh, you know, especially your, you know, your Firefly, Star Trek, Legends of Tomorrow, your basic kind of crew, you know, your crew of misfits and hooligans going on wild science adventures. And also, I hope that kind of a real science is a bit of an influence, kind of mm. thinking about science, not just as an excuse for cool stuff to happen or as a MacGuffin, but to try to think about what it means and how it and its power to change a society and and, you know, maybe hang some tropes, on, maybe hang a lampshade on some tropes and just try to make the science seem a bit more real and pursue science for its own sake rather than pursuing a plot i definitely feel like the theme of scientific exploration like as its own discipline and intellectual piece is is significant from what i've seen already in the story yeah definitely i mean their their initial critique of the galactic M of, of the reach is that like it's just using science for war and for like rockets that look like dicks basically i think is the joke that they make and um and that that's a, you know, and that that's actually look at the death of creativity and innovation. Yeah, absolutely. And just trying to show that stagnation and science denial that has come from just pursuing the single-minded goal of just better military, um, and a very simplistic idea of military at that. Um, I think a lot of the pure focus for science for its own sake comes from the Elliot Dow character who uh, gets introduced in Chapter 2, which is out on Comixology uh, on May 15th. So that'll be out next So next week. And he's 
kind of your typical amoral scientist, but what's a lot of fun of Griffin is taking a lot of the traditional villain tropes and flipping it around so those villain tropes become protagonist tropes. Um, so he, That's cool. Yeah, so there's a few kind of classic, you know, where Griffin finds themselves in a few classics and in, in, uh, some classic scenarios that happen, but uh, they find themselves in the position that the villain is usually in. Um, especially in regards to their uh, relationship with Rosalind, with uh, Admiral Hunter. Uh, I, I'm excited for that. That, that's, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I, I still have like, the ending to write, and they, they are, this, ser- the, this series is really about these two people on a collision course, and I've never really written a story that was so focused on a single like, kind of protagonist-antagonist clash, and I'm so excited, and so far, and every time these characters are even just close to each other, it's been dynamite to write, so I cannot wait to finally set it all off. So uh, how many issues is the series going to be? So it's going to be uh, so six issues, which, because we're releasing it on Comixology in uh, half-issue chapters coming out every three weeks, it'll be 12 chapters uh, priced for a dollar each. Gotcha. So yeah, that that's a, the structural choice of viewing it as like chapters, etc., versus issues and all that. Like, what's what's your thinking behind that? So that was uh, partially a way of kind of getting content out to people fat, um, a little faster, and also just kind of taking advantage of the digital first release to kind of just think about it in a way in uh, different ways. Um, you know, releasing it in a format that you really couldn't as uh, floppy in stores, and to me, it's also. Uh, becomes an interesting. It gives the series, uh, I think, a bit of an interesting rhythm and pacing versus uh, Heavenly Blues, which I think was uh, at a much more slower pace. Yeah, I think, definitely. Uh, Griffin. I think with Griffin, I think it's very interesting that forced me to have kind of a scene, like a big scene change or like have a big moment. Not every twenty-two pages, but every eleven pages. So like the cliffhangers have to come faster more rapidly big moments have to happen so i think i think it's i think it's a format that lends itself to the kind of very like loud rapid energy that i think the series operates at its best on cool well I, i'm really looking forward to being able to read the rest yeah. of it and it's as it's coming out and you said the next issue was out in Ju- uh, june when uh, so chapter two, which is the second half of issue one, is out May fifteenth, and then mm-hmm. uh, chapter three uh, it comes out June fifth, and then uh, the chapter four is out June twenty sixth, and that wraps up issue two, and then we're on to issue three in July. Exciting! Well, I'm looking forward to uh, everyone being able to check that out because you don't even need to go to the store; you can just get it on your you know portable device right away. Quote a fantastic sci-fi movie. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, went I there. Rewatched, I just rewatched that recently. Um, anyway. <laughs> Can I tell you, I didn't watch that movie until I was 21. And after I oh, saw dude. it, I, I felt like I'd see, I felt like I loved it since I was six. No, I didn't see it until I was like 35 or something. It's no wonderful. It's such a good movie. I uh, love the Running it. Man, for those who may not. That's from The Running Man, right? Uh, RoboCop. 
RoboCop. Shit. No, I saw RoboCop a long time ago. I recently, which I also recently rewatched. I just re okay. They yeah, both the, of these. They it's have the a lot funny of TV guy. Television. There's yeah. a lot of dystopian television in both of these. It's the funny TV seen. guy with the mustache and the glasses. He keeps going. I'd buy that for a dollar. RoboCop is super freaking good. It's I so like. Good. It makes me sad that a lot of people don't seem to understand explicitly political content. I don't know how that's not clear to people what's going on with RoboCop. Well, I hope they understand Griffin. Oh yeah. Well, I think you 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 know you're not having the same quantity the, of mass. You're, you know what I mean. Not quite. The char- I'll tell you this: the character is not the character, and what they believe and what they represent is not subtle. Hmm. Uh, but, um, to give uh, out of context line from a future issue, these uh-huh. people already invented capitalism. They were fucked with or without the reach. Bam. That's badass. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Heavenly Blues. Yes. Um, that's a very special series. I've been really got super addicted into that one. Uh, thank I, you. Uh, I feel like it's the kind of comic where it was about like half. I think it was when we sort of had the brief flashback into uh, one of the main characters' backstories later on in issue one that I finally really got really got into it. But um, but this is a, it's a different sort of story. It's a heist uh, with folks who've been condemned to hell um, trying to steal something from heaven, and you've got it's like some getting the group together issues. Lots of different, you know, a handful of, not lots of different, but a handful of characters whose sort of backgrounds you give them into. Um, <sighs> and all that. Um, so, so talk to me about how that comic, uh, the ideas behind that. So the idea behind that. Um, so I love high stories. I love like your, you know, your Ocean's Eleven, uh, The Sting, your you know, Sly Cooper video game series. So I love the idea of doing a heist and you know, like you said, and pacing it like a classic heist movie in a comic. So, you know, you're putting the band, you're putting your band together issue. Uh, you're a big actor. You're scoping out, reconning the job issue. And then they pull the big heist. So again, we were kind of talking about the pacing of heavenly blues versus Griffin, uh, Griffin's kind of rapid fire adventure versus heavenly blues, more slower, methodical build up than boom at the end. Now, um, so the original kind of germ of an idea was, uh, there's an Irish proverb, may you be in heaven half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. So from that, I got the idea of, oh, what if you had half an hour to break into heaven before the devil comes after you? And, you know, the plot obviously kind of moved away from that ticking clock devil aspect but that became kind of the genesis of the idea of uh, a high story set in heaven and hell. Uh, you know, your Ocean's Eleven in heaven. And then later on, I kind of, you know, kind of let it stew. One of those instances where I had, uh, I had the pre- right premise, but I didn't have the right story. I really wanted to do the kind of uh, team as family dynamic and really kind of and, you know, take characters from hell and give them that kind of heartwarming, finding yourself, being more than the sum of your parts uh, dynamic. And from there, it just all just kind of took off into this, you know, Ocean's Eleven meets the good place. Hmm. 
Oh, that is a good way to describe it for sure. You've got a really interesting cast of characters from like different sort of points throughout history. You have a character from the Salem witch trials period. You've got a character from ancient Egypt. And all the stuff around the Egyptians is really interesting. Um, someone from the Wild West and, uh, uh, you know, someone from the 1930s. Um, am I forget? Oh, yes, you have an actual ninja. Yes. I love Naruto, uh, but not a yes. real, but not a Naruto ninja. I I did a lot of research into him to try to get him as historically right as I could. Yeah, I was going to say. So tell me more about your ninja. <laughs> so again, the ninja. I'm only proud, of, and because I, I really tried to avoid the crazy wall running magic and tried to make him as real. So, you know, not sure. I'm sure that there's a lot I missed and didn't get right, but uh, you know, he he gets killed in 1582. Uh, he's uh, as part of the Oda Nobunaga uh, waging war on the Ida clan, which um, is a real battle, which really happened. Um, so his is kind of based a little more on real life history than the others. But he was definitely an interesting character, kind of the um, the respected community leader in life turned, uh, you know, pathetic drug addict, you know, kind of a disrespected drug addict on the streets mm-hmm. of hell and seeing him kind of come back from that and go for being kind of just, you know, their stealth on a, their stealthy junkie on a leash to kind of getting his pride back and becoming more of a real member of the team. And to me with heavenly blues, taking all the characters from different eras and putting them all together was, I mean, that was half the appeal of doing the book right there was mm. have I, the, I couldn't think of any other way to bring all, take all these toys out of the toy box and mash them together without involving time travel. So it was fun not doing time travel, but instead having to conceive of and build through the afterlife uh, setting, like this city of hell that you can imagine all these characters existing in and potentially interacting in. That's really cool. I, I uh, you know, like just... If you're having a story about death and the afterlife, you know, definitely ancient Egypt comes to mind right away, too. And um, I, I like the, uh, the the sort of dive into the someone's character's history as a grave robber, a tomb, sorry, as opposed to grave, a tomb robber. And that sort of as an act of, like, class uprising. Oh, yeah, no, that was really interesting to see, just the sense of, and, um, you know, I tried to get a sense of how would like because especially in that from what we know about their culture and religion that was so focused on death and all that that was trying to understand like what would the mentality of a grave robber be would they be someone who actively rejected uh the religion and were by our standards more of an atheist and what i kind of settled on instead was a sense of believing in the religion but again making it more of a class belief where they believe that that the rich died with so much that they don't deserve to have that much in death after having so much in Mm -hmm. life. So try to make, um, yeah, try to base it not so much more off religious rebellion and more, um, and really ground, uh, the character of Amunet in, uh, class resentment. Yeah, definitely. And you've got another really cool queer character, uh, in the cast as coin counter. Oh, coin counter Turner. Oh, my wonderful bi cowboy. It's a great gang. Well, not not gangster. It's a gay, I guess I'm used to saying gangster, whatever. It's a great criminal name. Yeah. It's a great great badass name. So I kind of got that idea from uh, how Doc Holliday got his kind of Wild West name because he was a dentist. 
So I kind of took that inspiration and after, you know, first getting the name Coin Counter because I liked the name and then working backwards from there to kind of establish his uh, backstory as the young son from a banking family um, who went out west to make the best of his years and very much made the best of them. Yeah, I, I, I liked uh, his journey west. And the, who did the, did, did, did your artist, um, did he do colors for yeah. all of it too? Yeah, the That's color right. work on this Bruno is really freaking colors. good. Yeah, no, Bruno's he's, color work is really freaking good. Wonderful. Shifting between the different, between the different time periods and worlds in the series. So that was a lot of fun. That was, uh, you know, definitely, that was fun making Heavenly Blues a quintuple period piece and really getting to play in kind of the different genres and, you know, trying to make it feel uh, like a Western, trying to make it feel like an old samurai movie, trying to make it feel like a gangster flick. Um, try, and, you know, Aaron's, I tried to, I wanted to have a bit of a, you know, a Scarlet Letter vibe to it. Um, so try to give uh, each one a different feel, but also, and this was an influence I kind of got from uh, Marvel's Netflix shows where each of the Defenders characters kind of each had their signature color that they would wear or would show up in lighting or in scenery. And I thought that was such a cool idea. So I, so each of the five main characters has their own uh, kind of signature color that uh, you see in their clothing and outfits and uh, narrative captions. But I thought what would really sell it was making those characters kind of the primary color uh, of their flashbacks as a way mm. of really separating it, making it very clear what's flashback and what on earth and what's, present day in the afterlife and really kind of making it and making each flashback really kind of tied into that character and just strengthening the bond between key color and character cool oh that's really cool did you end up doing a lot of different kinds of research for the different time periods that you were working from uh for sure i mean um different to me different time periods required a bit of different kinds of research um Mm -hmm. You know, for Amunet and Hideki, the uh, Egyptian and the ninja, uh, to me there it was, because those were other cultures was representing, I really wanted to, um, uh, it was, and because especially there was so much I didn't know about just the basic background, um, they required a lot of research to kind of figure out and get right and try to paint in more of the details and, you know, knowing where to fudge because, okay, traps and real pyramids weren't quite so Indiana Jonesy, but false tunnels aren't that fun to draw. So, ooh, yeah, that is understandably the case. Yeah, it's you know, so part of research was part of the historical research was knowing when consciously not to be historically accurate. Uh, like in the case of Aaron, uh, the Salem witch trials took place entirely during the summer, but I really wanted snow scenes. That's so, fine. Histor- so when it's a matter of historical accuracy versus I want to do a cool thing. The cool thing's going to win every time. But the Salem Witch Trials, you know, like we know that that was actually a lot of it had to do with men stealing money from women, basically, right? And mm-hmm. so you had in your story, like you just dive right into that historical truth that I think a lot of people don't even know. I tried to That's make right. Every, everything's class yeah. war, people. Everything's class war. It all comes back to that. Yeah, I tried to have again and try to have. Aaron's character and to me having Aaron's character being someone that's trying to you know doing it for purely just selfish reasons of just both greed and pure survival uh trying to pull this scam and steal enough money to get out of Salem 
Uh, but I think the fact that in her own mind, it, the fact that she was delivering a karmic justice and was still punished for that, I think it just it's just one more thing that feeds into her sense of grievance and that she got screwed over and was given a bad hand and doesn't deserve to be in hell. Yeah, her her pain and frustration is is really powerful there. As a child, also, you know, in particular, but um, except her, she's like a former child who's now an adult. I, I but still is stuck in a child body. I, I was sort of wondering about that theme. I, um, you know, when she mentions in the first issue, she talks about like, you know, would my body? And to be, me, yeah. yeah try, and to me, once I once you start thinking about the afterlife, not as just the torture dimension, but as like a place where people are existing and interacting and just being for sent for decades and centuries at a time uh what happens to people that die as children and are then children for literally centuries uh that became like that was one of the top things where i'm like okay well i have to explore that gotta answer like i have so many questions about that gotta have a character to represent that and answer that so kind of a lot of the themes and character arcs that kind of Aaron embodied those were all from in the plot from a very early on because I knew that was just a character that I was so fascinated to dig into and they really did become just a beat like a character that really I think pushed me as a writer like a lot of their flashback scenes I had to you know they were the their hers was the only death scene I had to like get up and like go for a walk halfway through writing just like yeah collect myself it's freaking hard it's yeah. really freaking hard. Um, so, uh, I mean, are there, like, wh- what is your, like, why Why is comics the medium that you really love to work in? So, yeah, it's definitely, it's the medium I fell in love with. Um, you know, it comics just grabbed my heart in a way that, for as much as I love video games and movies and television, they never did. It's comics or the one medium that I just felt, oh, I could do this. I can make this work. And it's just, it's just something about, I don't know. I can just see that I can just feel it. And it's just, it's just a medium that feels right to be working in. And the one-on-one collaboration with the artist, I think is so great. Just this merging of two very, again, like a writer style and an artist style, two incredibly distinct talents and the merging together of that every time you make a comic. Uh, I like to me, I really love that. And, you know, every medium's collaborative, but I think, uh, at the level of comics, when it's just a few creators, everyone's style is really able to come out to their fullest. And, and, um, really it's a medium where I can tell the stories I want to tell. It's, uh, you know, if I was trying to make a TV show or a movie out of Griffin, God, could you imagine trying to sell... Like mm-hmm. genderqueer anti fat like anti fascism to a studio. Uh, they would be like, actually, you should make this character a white man, and we will cast an actor who's already in many failing movies in the role instead. Also, what if capitalism is a good thing? And nobody working in the production team will be female. Yeah, ha- fist bump. So yeah. just compare the. Kafka at the Kafkian labyrinth that is Hollywood versus you know what I had a story that I was passionate about I was able to pull in the resources to 
get it fully produced and find a publisher and now it's out on comiXology and anyone anywhere can buy it for a dollar and that's really cool to me that is really cool so who's your dream casting for griffin the movie if it was to happen obviously as an independent film which we could have directed by i think katrina del mar or some other queer filmmaker who's independent i think you know you put you know, put her through like kind of the old, the old Marvel method fight training. I th- I feel like Jenny Slate would make an amazing Griffin. Mm. Um, I love Jenny Slate and the humor. I see the humor across both of the characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just felt I just feel like she can. She's so good at just playing characters at such different extremes that she can handle like just the snaps between dangerous and silly, hmm. which the character needs. Uh, Melissa Fumero would be my pick for Telika. So we can mm-hmm. kind of just bring that exasperated yet sarcastic um, straight man style comedy, and uh, Stephen Yeun has really been um, is what most of my is pretty much all my reference picks for Elliot Dow. Cool, I do love some Stephen Yeun because I I'm, I have eyes. So right, cool, yes, absolutely. Well, that is a really great great casting combination for this have you seen any films by katrina del mar because if you haven't i need to make sure you watch her movies i don't think so okay i'll send you some links after the show Ooh, I feel yes like please she and your aesthetic would be very aligned um she did the gang girl trilogy back in the uh late 90s early aughts um which is like girl gangs on bicycles girl surfer gangs like, oh, all I need. Very I need to. Lower east side. I need. I need to be seeing these movies right away. All homemade, sixteen millimeter camera, like super eight in some cases. Yeah, no, you're. I need it. to be seeing these movies, and then come twenty twenty two, don't be surprised when a very when the inspiration for a new comic series is very obvious. <laughs> no problem. Well, thank you for joining the show. Let, uh, where can our listeners um, find your work online? So. Uh, Heavenly Blues, uh, all the individual issues and the complete trade paperback collecting the whole series uh, can be bought from the Scout Comics uh, website uh, website store, and that's just scoutcomics.com slash store if you want to get specific. Um, and Griffin, Galaxy's Most Wanted is available now on Comixology. Um, and Fabulous. You can, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at, at BenTheCon and at, at BenConComics.com. To our listeners, don't forget, you can always find Graphic Policy online at GraphicPolicy.com. This podcast is on SoundCloud and Stitcher and iTunes. Go to Graphic Policy for all your comics, news, and reviews. And of course, I am on Twitter all too often at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. So... Keep it geeky.